the tails make a difference. We, we, we found this out recently. Tails are so small, but it really, really does the job. It contains so much fat and collagen. Um. Welcome to Eat the World, a podcast about food. My name is Rob Lewis. I'm a well-traveled eater and a fearless home cook. On my Instagram page, I have a community of people like me, talented home cooks from around the world that make the dishes that they love for their friends, families, and followers. For the 17th episode, my guest is Hachi from the Instagram page Hachi's Ramen. Hachi was born in Toronto, spent a considerable time in Tokyo, then moved to Montreal, where he launched three Japanese restaurants, Iwashi Izakaya, Dazard, and the newest one, Okea. Together, we made a vegan ramen dish uh, using Beyond Meat. Hachi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. The first question you asked me, which I thought was so interesting, is what's your favorite type of ramen? Okay. And I ducked it completely. I just said, oh, if I'm drunk at three in the morning, that's my favorite type of ramen. Right. But that's not really the right answer. What is your favorite type of ramen? Um, I agree with your idea of 3 a.m. ramen, but um, in terms of the actual type of ramen, I like clear broth um, simply because there's more depth in flavor and you don't feel bad after eating or drinking all the soup. And uh, I like when there's fish flavor in the broth, not just pork or chicken, but more like a seafood umami combined because of the complexity. And when you order this, would you order it as like a shio ramen and hope that they put the fish in the dashi or? Pretty much, pretty much, yes. A lot of shio ramen, there's there's usually some sort of fish inside and I do prefer that style. So shio ramen, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was living in Singapore, the importation of different ramen just kind of took off. So you had like the Hakata style, like Ipudo ramen, mm-hmm. and then the Sapporo style, like Santuoka ramen. Right. Um, and there are all these different different variations of how different towns do it. And then I, when I was living in Japan, I lived in Nagoya, which is more of a somen town. Oh, nice. I mean, after college, what did you do in Japan? I was working in restaurants, working in kitchens. And do you have a formal kitchen education or is it the old apprenticeship model? Just older apprenticeship model. I never studied or anything. Tell me about the first restaurant experience you had. It was an izakaya and I was, I was a dishwasher. This was when, where he, the chef was by himself and he was, he was just an amazing cook chef. It was, he had hundred, over a hundred menus on his in the restaurant and he was just by himself and that I thought that was crazy but that was pretty much the only restaurant I have seen so I thought every other restaurants were like that but as I started working at other restaurants I realized that he was the only guy so um so when you were in college did you ever go to like the the corporate or the chain like Izaka is like a Murosaki or... Oh, yes, I have. But I didn't really think about what was going on in the in their kitchens because I never cooked and I never I never even was interested in, in food in general. So how were you introduced to him? What was the... Like, that's... It's a very strange step 
like more like you think like someone starts a okay i'm not doing anything i'll work at mcdonald's and i'll go to i like food and i'll do something but that you're going straight into the deep end of being like the the junior to a very um almost is he was he an eccentric chef to to think of it that he wanted to do everything like that by himself uh yes very but i was it was it was not possible for me to work for him because he didn't want to hire anybody so i chose another restaurant to immerse myself in cooking and that was my start i'm just so curious the power dynamic between the chef and you were very young at the time and also how many seats were in this izakaya about 30 or or less oh that's a lot So he was busy and how much how much work did he delegate down to you besides the the base of dishwashing and such It was 99% dishwashing he wouldn't let anybody else touch his food I was just watching him and do doing the dishes doing the cleaning and help the the floor a little bit serve and talk to the customers But was he pleasant to the customers He was very I mean he was pleasant to anybody to any staff any of his families but he just wanted to handle all the food by himself. I admire that in a way. It's crazy but it's also Mhm. I I I can see from his perspective it's quite pure. Like okay, this is my thing. Mhm. Mhm. And then what was the next thing that you worked with? The next restaurant. It was another izakaya more more sophisticated or modern I'd say but it wasn't that the kitchen that they 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 had was really pretty and you know there's better customer service and everything but the the staff didn't have the same ethics as the the previous guy had right but my this was my start with the, this was my start with my career so I thought Okay this is this restaurant standard and that was his standard so there must be other standards that I must see in the future and this was very interesting to me to start How long did you work there for About 7 or 8 months I didn't stay long at any restaurants How many restaurants in total before you decided to come to Canada About 5 or 5 or 6 restaurants And each restaurant you're learning, you know, you're seeing a little bit of the puzzle in terms of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the end of this journey, what what do you think developed in terms of both your your food philosophy and your ethos and which parts of the food world did you think, okay, this is this is really resonates with me. I was I was focusing on the problems that every restaurant's had and I found I find that the best way to motivate myself is to create a dish so when I, every time i worked at any restaurants life is really hard long hours you know angry people even even the food is really easy the people are i mean the chefs and the bosses are for some reason they're really tough on people so it's hard to keep up with them and it's hard to motivate yourself there was one restaurant that i worked at when I was a uh, the chef de cuisine of of my section and I was responsible of creating one one dish every week or every two weeks and 
that that was my first time that my idea went on the table and that was really fascinating to me writing a recipe in any form no matter the culture like japanese cooking or french cooking um whatever it is when you're bringing your own idea that's that's my most important thing to do in this industry when you worked in japan did you ever work for a restaurant that wasn't serving japanese food yes the the last place in tokyo i was working at was a french fusion place called called uh, tableau and the the chefs uh, i mean the chef and the maitre d was a non-japanese person where was the chef from he was born in england and he grew up in in the europe and australia so his english was a mix of all these different um different english and it was first in the beginning it was very difficult for me to understand what he was saying but once i got used to it him and i were the only english speaking people in the restaurant pretty much so I was able to help him a lot. When I was in Japan, it was so long ago. Mm-hmm. I lived there in 1990. Okay. I remember walking down different streets and you'd see a restaurant and especially some of the more fancy restaurants, mm-hmm. it may have like a little sign outside, mm-hmm. but you almost needed like an introduction to to go in and it felt very inaccessible. Right, right, right. for certain restaurants other restaurants obviously it's open restaurant anyone can go in but mm-hmm. once i discovered this website tabelog right wow it was it was like yelp but yelp with people who care so the pictures were all perfect the ratings were accurate mm. like it actually mattered and even some of the greatest restaurants in the world they never ever got 5 stars they get like 4.1 which is crazy great Mhm mm-hmm. everybody was so serious in terms of contributing pictures and ratings. Mhm. But it opened up a world of oh, where do you want to eat? You can see everything before you go in and even call mm-hmm. ahead of time and say, "Oh, can mm-hmm. I come in?" Mhm. But it's great. Yeah. I mean, Tableau is a serious restaurant. 3.55 stars is amazing for Japan. They're really old, at least 30 years old now. And what what made you decide to go to Montreal? to open my business basically i met a friend when i was living in toronto and he was from montreal he wanted to he had owned already many businesses many restaurants but he was wanting to open an izakaya in montreal so we got to started talking discussing ideas and then that's when we opened iwashi izakaya that's when i moved to montreal I saw a video clip of you doing an interview where you're making a tonkotsu base and you take like a mm-hmm. basically a whole pig head plus trotters and all that. Yes. But the interesting right. thing about the video is that the the person who is doing the question asking actually knows very little about Japanese food. <laughs> When you set up and launched Iwashi Izakaya, mm-hmm. did Montreal know what Izakaya culture was or izakaya food at the time yes yes there were already many izakayas that were very popular but sushi was still a big part of japanese culture i mean japanese food 
and ramen and izakayas were still pretty new at that time and the ratio of food to drink like i think izakaya is like amazing food but it's basically a pathway to drink a lot mm-hmm. in japan yes in montreal is it the same where it's really about the drinks and then the food is there to prolong the experience or is it more food heavy it's food heavy people in montreal they distinguish their the places to eat and drink if you go to nezukaya they're there mostly to to eat and then if they want to drink more they go to bars after so izakayas and restaurants they try to sell alcohol because because it's good for the business but not a lot of people drink and eat at the same time and how different is was the um the concept at tazard how did that happen the concept of tazard was basically a bigger bigger version of iwashi because iwashi is sardine in japanese tazard is like a king mackerel in japanese i mean in french so basically we wanted to upscale the the this concept of is iwashi and because because iwashi was very limited in terms of space and the whole establishment Yes, yeah, so we made a move to it was in the neighbor and it was a bigger kitchen, bigger dining room, a space for parties and everything. We were able to do lots of experiment and new stuff, make better ramen. So a lot of the ramen pictures that you have posted on your Instagram page, are they from Iwashi or Thazard or are they from your own kitchen? The latest ones are all from my house, house kitchen. I started posting my ramens in I think May of 2020. The amount of experimentation is absolutely divine. Oh, thank you. I think um there's some things the the some things where it's not um like things that I've never seen, for example, like the sous vide duck ramen. Mhm. the texture of sous vide and and what it does to duck breast is magnificent mm-hmm. um but i don't think i've experienced it in a japanese ramen before or if there's duck it's more of a confit duck or stringy duck right how did how did the dish come out and what was your thinking behind it the duck breast it's kind of a trend in japan right now using the sous vide technique to to make garnishes of ramens mostly pork but a lot of people do duck. not a lot of people but duck is kind of popular now and i always used the sous vide technique for duck breast since since i came to canada i was very familiar with it i had very different recipes um like canadian style french style japanese style and i thought the duck breast was a perfect fit for one of my new ramen dishes because having the pink pink meat on a ramen it used to scare people but now it it fascinates people to prepare that are you rendering like a like if if a french technique you would score the uh, fat side and then cook all the the fat out mm-hmm. and then finish the duck but mm-hmm. when you sous vide what happens to the uh, the fat or how do you what's the process either before or after 
to deal with the fat. You still score and sear the fat to render fat out, and then and then you put it in a and then you put it in a bag with the broth, and you sous vide it with it, like in the liquid. Is the duck frozen when you sear it? No, it's fresh. The searing itself, there's so much fat to go through. You're still not accidentally cooking the underside of the duck meat. No, uh, you cook, I cook uh, very, very little. So it takes like at least five to ten minutes to, to render the fat. And the other side is still like raw, but I flip it. And I see it for maybe maybe like five seconds on all sides, and then I rinse it with boiling water to 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 remove the excessive fat, and then I cool it in ice bath, and then I soak it in the broth. I've used sous vide, but mostly to make like the uh, ramen egg because the te- you can get the temperature perfect, and you really can you know craft the consistency of the yolk. Hmm. The eggs, we we do it in the traditional way because this is one of the things I want to experiment in the future. But uh, I tried it a couple of times. The, sh- the shell became really hard to peel. Mm. So we were just uh, boiling it for seven minutes or seven and a half minutes. And it's easy to peel. But I like the sous vide technique because like onsen tamago, they're like controlled when you sous vide them. It's hard to fail. You always get the consistency, the, the creamy egg yolk, not creamy, like the, the springy soft egg yolk. The oozy egg yolk is like joy. Yes. So I, I once boiled the egg for, for about five minutes so that the egg white is completely solid, but the egg yolk is raw completely. And then I took it out and then I put it in the sous vide bath. I think that worked well. I love sous vide for long braises where the meat still remains steak-like, but you've broken down all of the collagen. Mm -hmm. So the texture, you know, especially for certain types of pork, like if it's fatty pork, like a pork shoulder or a pork butt, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I've tried it getting the texture of the meat right but then adding a coating and then quickly heating it to add. So if I'm making like a chasu, sous vide and chasu go great. Mm-hmm. But it's it's so hard because getting the temperature right, it's almost like you cook it with sous vide, but then you have to chill it so that when you really heat it up, you're not changing the, the protein structure. Sous vide requires a lot of experiment, which I haven't done much with chasu. On your profile, you say sometimes you're a vegan. Mm-hmm. Does it come in phases or what was your introduction to being a vegan? I just love eating fresh vegetables. I want like 80% of the food coming coming into my mouth be vegetables. But I enjoy meat. I enjoy fish. I also love, um, oh, we used to have a vegan pop-up project in Montreal. And we would do pop-ups at different restaurants. And we, we made a lot of dishes. We were always doing different styles every time. We once did like a vegan ramen pop-up or like a vegan izakaya pop-up, like a vegan like tasting menu pop-up, stuff like this. And that was a lot of fun because it's very, very challenging to create dishes only using vegetables. And we were even gluten-free. So there was a lot of limitations. 
but it, yes, any ch- challenges like this is what I find it more motivating. So that's where I um, explain myself to be vegan, like partially vegan. I'm always amazed what dish my guests recommend that I make. And sometimes it's something that's very important to them. Sometimes they think, oh, my cuisine is, you know, let me give you something easy to to start your, your learning path up. But when you suggested vegan food, I thought, okay, this is an interesting recipe mm-hmm. until I got to the point where um, one of the ingredients was Beyond Beef. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I ever bought or used the Beyond Beef product before. Oh, cool. How did you like it? I thought it was good. I thought the recipe, the way that you, you structured the recipe, was it your recipe or was it someone else's recipe? Oh, it's my recipe. The fact that you started with a ragu mm-hmm. and a dashi as separate stages mm-hmm. and then combined in the end mm-hmm. uh, worked out great because tasting the ragu by itself mm-hmm. was, was a revelation. Oh. I think the the Beyond Beef product tastes like it tastes beef, but it tastes beef in a um, like a Burger King hamburger way. Okay. But when you add the ginger and the green onion and all the different flavorings, mm-hmm. it transforms the ragu into something uh, something very nice. Yes, 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 totally. I really like the recipe because the ragu can be used for other things. For you, you can even make dumplings with it, or you can put it in fried rice. All you got to do is just. Um, adjust the amount of water that you put. So if you're doing dumplings, you you make it a little dry so that it's easier to wrap them. Same goes for the fried rice. The second part that I thought was very clever was the addition of starch to the dashi. Okay. Because without it, it would taste thin. Mm-hmm. And you don't want the noodles to get soggy because that would taste awful. Mm-hmm. So having a silkiness from the soup Mm-hmm. Where normally I think you would have more animal fat, like the uh, like a pork fat would be delicious, yes. but then not vegan. So, <laughs> you know, it was really well constructed recipe. Oh, thank you. This was surprisingly, this was the first time I ever used kombu before in a dashi, mm-hmm. because I I just buy on dashi and oh okay, like I know it's cheating, but it's so easy. Mm-hmm. But the depth of flavor from kombu. Mm-hmm is it's a di- different level. Yes, kombu, it's crazy how, how well it does the job considering the amount that you put in just a, just water and it makes a great broth. So I've, I've made like a pork bone stock. Okay. But, but not a full like... Emulsified. Yes. Mm. I haven't gotten to that, the creamy, the creamy milky level. And I don't know whether it's just patience or I'm using the wrong. There's not enough gelatin in the bones that I'm using, or my ratio of bones to to water is wrong. We were combining different parts of the animal, such as the ham bone, the the rib bones, and the tails. And the tails make a difference. We we, we found this out recently. The tails are so small, but it really really does the job. It contains so much fat and collagen. Um, pig heads are the best for for me, but it's kind of hard to find. It's really annoying to handle. Did you make a um, the traditional French like 
tête de um, like a head cheese or a tête de fromage. Basically, boil a pig head and then yeah. they scrape all the good stuff out yes, and form yes. a pate around it. It's awesome. It's really, really awesome. Like you get to use up all the parts, like even the ears. You cut them in strips and you mix it all up. And we were、um, breading them and frying them. It worked really well. So you make the head cheese, and the next day you take it off in the fridge and you cut them into pieces and you bread them so that you get the crust outside and you, you don't. Because when you just serve head cheese, you sometimes see the ears and like whatever random pieces. It kind of scares the customer. So. <laughs> We were、uh, making like a katsudon or like a mench katsu with the with the head cheese. Put it on a rice with with some sauce and tartar sauce or something. The other dish that I saw on your Instagram page, which really made me drool, was the lobster stukemen. Oh yes, the miso one. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting because the the color of the dipping sauce.、Mm-hmm. It looked red, like、uh, almost like a lobster coral. Yes, yes. So, how did you make that dish? The sauce was made of a lobster bisque, like a traditional traditional way, and then reduced and flavored with red miso, yeah, ginger and ginger and garlic, just to add the Asian flavor of it. Had you served this in your restaurant? No. This was served only to my close friends. <laughs> yeah, I think we should become better friends. This is a dish that describes friendship. How did you prepare the lobster itself? Lobsters were boiled and shelled. Oh, it was very simple. That that's pretty much it. And I just tossed it with lemon zest, and I think I put smoked oil or something. What's I saw the picture. That you had、um, a dried bonito and then the traditional kind of shaver, wood shaver, to make bonito flakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But did you buy dried bonito,、mm-hmm. or do you make the bonito itself? Or that one I made. So I bought fresh bonito. It was a long process. It took like two, three months because first you need to boil and then you smoke it and dry. And then you have to ferment, ferment it with koji. How did it turn out compared to if you had bought the dry bonito product? It was a bit too dry. It's hard to control the humidity, like the moisture level of the product. When you buy it, it's perfect, so it's easy to shave. But my homemade ones. It becomes a little bit too flaky. It doesn't hold the the shape of each each pieces. Do you know, like, if you have like a like a yakisoba and they put like dried bonito flakes on top, and it does this wonderful dance where the flakes move around? Were your flakes able to dance? Yes, it yes they were. <laughs> Fortunately, congratulations. The other dish that I saw, and maybe not a dish, but that used the koji was. I saw that you made your own sake. Yes, or at least I saw the rice being boiled、mm-hmm. before the koji was put in. How did so? Walk me through the process of of making your own sake. So how to make sake?、Um, all you need is rice and rice koji and water. These are the ingredients, and a bit of dry yeast 
first you soak the sushi rice in water for I did it overnight and you drain it and then you steam it for about an hour until it becomes tender but not mushy and then you cool it down to to like a warm temperature like below it has to be below 40 degrees otherwise when you mix it with koji the the heat will kill the bacteria and you just combine everything in a bin and let it ferment for about three weeks initially like when you combine the ingredients you put a bit of the bread yeast or dried yeast to to boost the, to, to start the fermentation to lower the risk of contamination contaminating and other bad bacteria to grow but how do you know so with fermentation i always think oh if i get this wrong i'm just going to die and it's going to be terrible mm -hmm. like is there is it just faith or how did you know you were doing it the right way i was checking and tasting it every day and i was enjoying the difference it makes over time so today it tastes like this but tomorrow it already it has a different flavor different acidity different carbonation level and do you have to distill out the alcohol no you just strain it and how strong is it i'm pretty sure it's over 10 percent in alcohol wow was it clear or was it milky you get both so like the initial when you strain it and when you wait, when you let it sit in the fridge for, for a whole day, all the particles will sink on the bottom. And, and then you can separate the clear part and the, the nigori part. In New York City, the Japan Society uh, used to host a sake festival. So they had basically um, brewers from all over the country. And you really could tell you know, the difference between like a Sapporo, which is cold and dry versus like a Honshu or uh, sorry, a Kyushu, uh, which is a more humid area. When you made yours, were you trying to achieve a certain style of sake or a certain taste? Or was it more, let's just try this and see how it turns out? I just want to see how it turns out because it's very hard to control the the polishing level of rice when you don't have an equipment. You know, when you see sake, they would tell you like how, how much it has polished out, like 60%, 40%. Right. But doing that by hand is, is impossible. I was rinsing my rice for like 45 minutes, like, and you don't see anything happening. Like you don't see a difference and you don't know when to stop because, because the process, the whole process of it is, is just wrong like you should you can't really do it with your hands so already you're not able to control the amount of impurities that you want in your sake and the fermenting temperature is also hard for me to control because i didn't i don't have a wine cellar if you do it will be much much more easier because the early stage of fermentation and the later stage you're supposed to you're supposed to change the temperature so that the bacteria matures and develops the flavor differently. But I didn't have that much patience to control all that different aspects. A lot of times when I make a dish like that, which is like a brand new dish with brand new techniques, mm -hmm. 
my conclusion is, okay, I learned something. It's interesting, but I'm never going to do that again, but I've tried it and I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And other times I'm like, this is great. I'll just do this again and again and again, and I'll get better at it. Mm-hmm. With sake making, mm-hmm. is this a one and done thing or is this something that you're going to try again? I'm going to try again, but I'm going to try using different ingredients. One thing I want to try is the makori, the, the, which is uh, like a Korean style nigori sake. That's the that's the milky fermented uh, beverage, yeah? Yes, they ferment flour, like wheat flour and yes. rice goji, I think. I've had that. That's nice. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific sour taste, but it's nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Has Okea opened up yet? Yes, we're open. What's the theme? Because this is more omakase. And what's the relationship between the, the, the decision of what you serve and the, the individuality of the guest who comes in? How do you manage that process? The direction we're going is focused on the presentation and the actions when we serve the meals, the ser- serve the dishes. So the food that we're going to be serving is more focused on the popular ing- ingredients like tuna and salmon, scallops, that kind of stuff. But the way we serve it is more very original. For example, when we serve the bonito, like the fresh bonito, we're going to smoke, like flash smoke them in front of the customers. Or when, when we serve the tempura, we're going to fry them in front of the customers so every dishes we present there's always like a specific action to them and the food products itself we're slowly gonna be offering different real traditional old school japanese stuff which is usually not so popular to the people in north america because we have to see how people react what would the example of of a product that you'd like to introduce to people in Montreal that they may not have experience with? Me, me personally, I would like to pr- offer more fermented fish products. Yes. Because that is so hard to find. And these are the stuff that people are not used to. I think that's great. Because if you go to like the basement of a department store and you see like the vats of, of the fish and it's sitting in, in, um, in the fermented, like a, a, like a miso or whatever, I think that's perfect because it has a special taste, mm-hmm. but it's not something that anyone would, mm-hmm. would start and buy for their own house if they could find it in, in Canada. We, at Tazard, we used to do like, um, like a seafood charcuterie. So we would make tuna prosciuttos and like fermented mackerel, that kind of stuff. We put, we would plate them on like a wooden board and make it look like charcuterie, but all from the sea. It was, it was very popular, but certain items would come back not even like touched. So it's, (laughs) it's very interesting to see the reactions. If you take like a mackerel, for example, or like um, a really oily fish, and, you know, Montreal's got this crazy history with the French and, the, and, and being in North America and the ingredients are different. Mm-hmm. Are there any f- local foods that are, you think are Quebecois food, right? That translates really well into Japanese food? Like they like herring, so they'll like mackerel or something like that, that you thought, oh, I didn't think people would like this, but they really get it. Beca- and I'll give you an example. Obviously, Montreal is famous for poutine and bagels and smoked meats, but none of that is Japanese food, but the smoked salmon that they use for the bagels is close enough. 
So a smoked fish would go over very well, for example. I don't know if it's true. Yes, but I personally love smoked mackerel, which I make at home regularly. I, I save the bones and smoke them too, because it makes a beautiful broth. I don't know if it's Montreal specific, but any forms of prosciutto and salamis sausages, I think can be transformed into like the, the, the seafood version because the fermenting process is not that different. It basically salted and fermented with some bacteria. It's just a different product and different water content that you need to be, be careful of. One of the things I realized over time is that actually making ramen is pretty easy and it's accessible to people who are home cooks. Like they should make ramen, even if they don't go through the trouble of making the ramen noodles, which isn't hard. It's just involved, right? But you can buy decent ramen, either flash fried ramen or dry ramen or fresh ramen. What would be three or four tips that you would give a home cook or advice that you would give them to encourage them to make ramen or what type of ramen to make it both easy and wonderful? When you choose the noodles, try to go for the rather whiter ones because when it's so yellow, it's, it's food colored heavily. When you boil them, the water gets yellow, and I think it's pretty gross. So I tend to choose noodles that are more white. I like both fresh noodles and dry noodles. They have different texture, but not like which is good and which is bad. As long as there's not many mysterious ingredients on the list. And to make the broth, if, you, if you're if you into making, like spending 12 hours like overnight kind of broth always use like an organic organic bones organic chicken bones pork bones because it does make a difference in flavor there's much much less impurities that come out and you don't get the weird aftertaste when you when you eat it and garnishes i like putting i like to keep it simple the the garnish that i made for the the dish that i presented to you the the vegan dish the curly green onions this is one of my favorite garnishes because it's so pretty and you only need a little bit of the green onions. You don't have to go crazy chopping. You just have to do a couple slices and soak it in water for, for 20 minutes. It just becomes really pretty. And oh, like one of the mistakes I'm, I've made in the past is combining like various seafoods. Like I, w- I put, there's a dish that I put octopus, scallops, shrimps, and uh, mussels in one bowl and it didn't taste good because the flavor combination was was not bad but it wasn't really working synergetically and I and it was a lot of work too so keep it simple and let's try to bring out the flavor of the ingredients that you're using instead of just combining everything together because because the umami flavor the, the umami combination of the vegetables and the meat and the wheat and salt is what makes the dish perfect. I, I would agree 100%. This has been a lot of fun. Hachi, thank you for showing up for the podcast. Oh, it has been great. Thank you. 